Hello, welcome to the Basketball Soapbox. I'm your host, Daniel Daly. Thank you guys for joining me. Um, thank you for all the support on the channel. Continue to like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you as this channel continues to grow. Um, but this will be episode 11 of the Basketball Soapbox for the season three. Um, I'll be talking about a couple things around the NBA. I like doing that. Um, the Celtics uh, streak snapped at home. 20-game winning streak coming to an end to the Denver Nuggets tonight, unfortunately, for us Boston Celtics fan. As well as talking about Jerry Krause's uh, introduction into the Ring of Honor, the Chicago Bulls uh, recently had uh, honoring of the dynasty of the Bulls and um, the players and executives and coaches of that time. And Jerry Krause did not get a warm uh, reception um, with his wife in attendance and um, that didn't sit right with me in the, in the NBA uh, community as a whole. So I'll be talking about that as well, as well as the Pascal Siakam trade. Uh, the Indiana Pacers finally made a move um, and finally pulled the trigger on adding somebody to help Tyrese Halliburton and uh, bringing an all-star, all-NBA player, Pascal Siakam, to their team. So I'll be talking about that and going over that. And yes, but let's get into things around in the NBA. Um, first up, of course. The Nuggets defeating the Boston Celtics 102 to 100, uh, snapping the Celtics 20 game home winning streak came to an end. Um, very, very competitive game, tough game for the Boston Celtics. In the first half, it seemed like it was great as they had a 61 55 um, lead and everything was flowing. Christoph Porzingis and Nikola Jokic were having a shootout apparently in the first half um, and just playing really good basketball. And uh, uh, NBA Finals preview that everyone's thinking about and of course, the Denver Nuggets are former uh, defending champs, actually, um, going up against the Boston Celtics, who have been in the conversation for the past couple of years and knocking on the door. So this was a good litmus test for both teams to see where they are in the regular season. Um, and just a very highly entertaining game. The Stars came out to play. Um, very tough game for Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. I'll get to that in a moment. But I want to speak to the side of the Denver Nuggets and how – these games, they try, they tend to show up. They did drop that game against Philly the other the other night. Um, of course, Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid going at it. Uh, but this game, you can tell the Denver Nuggets just persevered and powered through it, um, despite not shooting so well outside of um, Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic um, in the over the course of that game. And uh, Jamal Murray, uh, thirty five points, eight rebounds, five assists, and just toyed with the Boston Celtics backcourt. And I thought a big thing was the end of the run half for uh, the end of the third quarter run uh, for the Denver Nuggets pulling it into one uh, 82-81 heading into the fourth quarter. That 8-0 run extended into the fourth quarter where I thought that was the moment the Boston Celtics kind of let grip of the game a little bit. And they had their opportunities. Surely they had their opportunities down the stretch. But those minutes where they don't have Joker on the floor. Those are minutes that the Boston Celtics have to take advantage of. And in those minutes, Jamal Murray was on the court and decided to uh, carve up the defense and get shots over Jason Tatum, uh, Derek White, <laughs> Drew Holiday. It didn't matter who they put in front of him. He was just carving up that defense. And kudos to him and Jamal Murray um, trying to get that all-star candidacy and give, and always prove himself in the West, even when the year when he had the uh, they won the championship, he was trying to uh, – just last year – uh, especially coming off from injury, just trying to prove himself. And you have to respect that guy. Um, he's very crafty, kind of reminds me of a Jalen Brunson, just very crafty, very tough, gets to their spots, finishes at the rim, um, able to knock down tough shots. And he's just tough as nails. Um, 
as he just went on a tear against the Boston Celtics. Um, as well as Nikola Jokic, 34 points, 12 rebounds, 9 assists. That's going to be his stat line. He's going to be in that range all the time. That's not going to change <laughs> depending on the opponent. Like, he's very efficient. Um, 14 for 22 on the night here tonight. Um, and just playing a great game and just able to really him and Jamal Murray, even over the course of that game, again, no one really contributing outside of Murray and uh, 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 Jokic in this game. And you see that in down the stretch, you could, the difference between them and the Celtics, the Celtics were kind of a little bit reckless on offense. Um, Jason Tatum couldn't knock down a shot tonight. I'll talk about that in a moment. But those guys just have a way of settling down the offense on for the Denver Nuggets, despite everything going on, <laughs> despite everything going on, um, and just have the ability to always get a good shot, run their play, get to their spots, get to the line, and get their shots off. And they were able to do that. Nikola Jokic was able to do that. Um, facing out Horford um, a couple of times down there in the post, uh, one at uh, Chris Porzingis a couple of times in those two guys are just always going to get a good shot down late in the game. And that's the level of execution that the Boston Celtics need going forward. Right. Like there's always a lesson in all these games, right? Like Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. And as good as both these teams play, it came down to those guys making plays over the Boston Celtics. That's pretty much it. Um, Jason Tatum with 22 points, eight rebounds and five assists, really struggling with a shot tonight. Just seemed like he didn't have the touch on the shot. Um, shooting the ball really hard, um, kind of out of control at a certain um, points of the game, but was making some good shots and stuff like that at some points, but just over the course of the game and late in the game was struggling, especially on those last couple of possessions there in the fourth quarter, um, which was unfortunate. But um, you're hoping that he can turn that over, and you can just see that he was trying too hard and trying to take over the game at that point and just couldn't get it done. KCP did a good job on him. Um, tonight, and they were able to throw different bodies at him and keep him at bay and keep him inefficient. Uh, Derek White um, stepping up um, was really quiet in the first half and then stepping up over the, the course of the game. Uh, 24 points, five assists, and three rebounds was trying to provide that energy that the Boston Celtics need. But over the course, when this team is not really shooting good, uh, Drew Holiday had a tough game as well. Um, you're looking at what Derek White usually provides and that he was able to do that, make a couple hustle plays in the fourth quarter. There was a often there was a defensive rebound that he got and tipped to Porzingis, I believe, late in the game. That was just a crucial point in the game um, and knocking down some big shots late. But just in general, when Brown and Tatum combined to shoot for 34 percent from the field, you're not going to win many games. And that's tough. And, you know, you got Porzingis, you got Derek White, you got Drew Holiday, but those guys are supposed to step up and be those guys that are taking the charge there. And they just couldn't show, shoot a shot in the ocean tonight. Um, combining for what, 15 of 43, 34% on the night is just, that was tough. And this was a game. This was a battle, right? Like these are two powerhouses in the NBA, uh, two dynamic teams. And the defense showed up tonight, 102 to 100, keeping it at low scoring game. Um, and kudos to the Denver Nuggets. I think people overlook their defense. And at times, even last year, excuse me, were able to get timely stops. And that's something that the Denver Nuggets and other teams don't really do, right? Like when you look at uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, when you look at the Golden State Warriors, when you look at separating teams, even the Milwaukee Bucks, if you want to put them in the conversation, of teams that just don't get timely stops to get the wins. And when you got guys like KCP, uh, 
Contavious Caldwell Pope, Aaron Gordon, guys that are struggling on the night, they're able to make up for it on the other side of the ball playing defense. Um, and kudos to those guys because it's not going to show up in the stat sheet. And, of course, their numbers, they didn't play too well shooting the ball. But defensively, I feel like that's where they stepped up for the Denver Nuggets. And they gave their, their guys, uh, Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, enough times, enough chances to get in charge of that game. And that's what they did. And kudos to them. Um, the Boston Celtics just not able to knock down shots tonight. Um, and that's pretty much it. And everybody's going to complain about the threes and, and stuff like that. I mean, the Denver Nuggets didn't shoot better from three from them. They were eight for 31, the Denver Nuggets, the Boston Celtics, 14 for 44. So, I mean, that's just a part of the Celtics offense. They're going to shoot more threes than the Denver Nuggets. The Denver Nuggets are going to usually carve up inside and they have Nikola Jokic able to cut. You're going to have to double him at times. So it was a difficult, difficult matchup there for the Boston Celtics. Free throws were about even. The Boston Celtics only turned over the ball, if I'm reading this right, three times in this game. So um, Boston Celtics able to keep down the turnovers. If they just get some shots to fall, this is a different game. Um, but this was a highly entertaining game, a highly uh, contested game and fun game. And the, the NBA needs to have these games. I know rivalry, is, rivalry week is coming up, I believe, next week. Um, so we're going to have some inter interesting games on the docket there. But, um, yeah, this is a great game. Um, it's cool to see uh, – Denver versus Boston, and hopefully this is a finals matchup for both teams. And hopefully Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have a better time, uh, game next time. <laughs> um, let's move on to some other news in the NBA. Uh, the late great um, Jerry Krause, uh, Bulls executive from 1985 to 2003, um, was honored in the ring of honor for the Chicago Bulls on last Friday night. Um, against the Golden State Warriors at halftime and and was booed by the Chicago faithful in attendance. Hold on one second. Uh, yes, was booed by the Chicago Bulls fans in attendance there, which was very unfortunate. And over the course of his career, he was kind of like, and especially in the last dance, they kind of made him out to be the villain a little bit. Um, but it was to show the showcase Michael Jordan and the Bulls and what they done and the players that were involved, the key players that were involved. I don't know why Carmen Electra was in there. I don't know why Justin Timberlake was in there. I guess to add some pop to it or some entertainment value. I don't know. The basketball was enough for me. But um, they had the main guys in there, Dennis Rodman, Steve Kerr. Um, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, who is a, a player and then assistant coach for them, um, Phil Jackson, um, uh, Jerry uh, Roundsdorf, the, the owner of the Chicago Bulls as well, but Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, those guys, all, all the Bulls there. Um, but they had a ring of honor where a lot of guys showed up. Uh, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman did not show up, um, but a lot of the guys were there, um, and they were honored. And Jerry Krause's um, name came up. And his wife, Thelma, was a representative. Um, Jerry Krause passed away in 2017. And they booed him. They booed him. And I know the history of the last dance and stuff like that in terms of um, people saying that he was trying to destroy the team and trying to put it in his image. And he was jealous. And he had this Napoleon complex because all the guys picked on him and he was little and all this other bullshit that all the stereotypical bullshit that they tried to lay on Jerry Krause. And. Over the course of this, he was booed. And I'm like, this is a guy that orchestrated the Bulls team 
to win six championships. And no question, Michael Jordan was the key component of that, Phil Jackson as well. But there has to be a guy that puts the team together. There has to be a guy that makes the deals. There has to be a guy that takes the chances. And Jerry Krause, his whole career as the GM of the Chicago Bulls, took chances and hit. And hit. A lot of times. Let's go over it. Uh, brought on Tex Winters early on. Um, Tex Winters was the guy for who, uh, who basically brought the triangle into the NBA. Um, I believe it was from USC where he uh, was an assistant coach. Um, brought it over and was kind of just tinkering with this in the background, right? And eventually was brought up to the forefront. Um, him and Doug Collins bumped heads when Doug Collins took over in 1986, I believe. And Doug Collins didn't want to use the triangle. Doug Collins was hell gung-ho on his style, his approach, his command of the team. And it seemed like this triangle offense was always going to be integrated at some point, which I'll get to in a moment. But in the 1987 draft, he drafted Olden Polonese and Horace Grant and amongst of other players because there was like seven rounds of the NBA <clears throat> back then, um, which was crazy. Um, but took Olden Polonese and traded him for Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen, all-time NBA defense, all-time NBA player, one of the 75 greatest players in the NBA, um, six-time champion. We know what Scottie Pippen is, the cohort to – to Michael Jordan and those two three-peats, six championships, we know the deal with Scottie Pippen. So to take Olden Polonese, who was traded to Seattle, who was a journeyman at best, a solid center in the NBA. He was a starter at times. because I remember him in Sacramento, especially as a young kid. Um, to do that and flip that and get Scottie Pippen and, two whores, and, and also Horace Grant, two pillars of that first three-peat, and two young guys that were able to go with Michael Jordan and build this team up. That's a chance he took. That's a chance he took. So Scottie Pippen, Hall of Famer, a guy that he drafted out of Central Arkansas, saw that and brought him into the NBA and traded for him. So that's the first thing. So the next thing he does is bring in Doug Collins, right? Like he brings in Doug Collins the year before. They win 46, they win 50, and then 47 games. And they get to the Eastern Conference Finals. And that's progression over where the Chicago Bulls were with the 30 and 52 win teams, the 20 and 52, uh, 28 and 52 win teams. Um, and being the eighth seed, making the playoffs and barely getting in and all that stuff, he transformed that, Doug Collins, into a team that got to the Eastern Conference Finals. And in reality, in 1989, fell two games short of getting to the NBA Finals. And what does. Jerry Krause do. Now, Doug Collins didn't help himself in this firing. Apparently, there were some things where he was kind of his style was kind of wearing on uh, the Chicago Bulls players, which is weird because Michael Jordan didn't have a problem with it. But the rest of the team kind of had a little back and forth with um, Doug Collins behind the scenes. So looking at it from that standpoint, he makes the change. The failure to integrate the triangle offense into his offense and has an assistant, Phil Jackson, who took that triangle and worked it to the bone and understood it underneath next to Tex Winters. And then they both brought it into the NBA. So Jerry Krause fires Doug Collins. Fires Doug Collins. Now, Doug Collins in the last dance made a great point. They got to the Eastern Conference Finals in three years from being a lottery team, uh, barely a 30-win team. And 
with Michael Jordan over the course of those years, All-NBA, NBA All-Star, MVP of the league, defensive player of the league. Now, you fire a coach who took the youngest pupil, pupil of your draft, and Michael Jordan was going to be an all-star and everything like that. Excuse me. It was going to be an all-star and all that. We knew Michael Jordan from day one was going to be that. But to fire a coach who fostered that, mentored that, grew that, that's crazy, right? <laughs> Like, that's crazy. And you fire that coach. You can arguably say that Doug Collins was the first Mark Jackson. A guy that got a team to the cusp of the finals, fell a little short, and didn't get a chance to get another shot at it. Now, Doug Collins will be fine. He showed up in Detroit, and they were able to turn around and get to the playoffs a couple times and stuff like that. Um, But that style also wore out there. So that didn't help Doug Collins in that slide. Brings in Phil Jackson, a guy who was a journeyman coach in, I believe, in Puerto Rico, and bringing him in and taking the chance on him and bringing him in and all that. Phil Jackson becomes the Zen master, 10 championships, one of the greatest coaches of all time. Arguably, some people say the greatest. Does that. Jerry Krause did that. He took a chance on Phil Jackson, Tex Winters, Doug Collins. Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, he did that. Like, he had a hand in that. We can't ignore that. And then also, the year prior, traded Charles Oakley for Bill Cartwright. Now, Bill Cartwright was just a big uh, a big center, starter. He was an all-star at one point. Um, but just a defensive guy, another big that they felt like they just needed more size and big to compete with other bigs, especially Patrick Ewing, in the Eastern Conference. And they beat the Chicago Bulls five times. Not all the times with Bill Cartwright. I believe it was like three times with Bill Cartwright. But to see, sit there and say, hey, we need to upgrade over Charles Oakley, who Charles Oakley was a scorer at some points, but he was a bruiser, enforcer, and rebounder, but just didn't have the size to go up against the bigger centers in the East. And to make that change and take that chance, and especially Charles Oakley, who was Michael Jordan's best friend, to do that and say, hey, this is going to be best for the team. And that worked out. That led to the first three peats for the Chicago Bulls. The first three peats. Michael Jordan retires. He has Tony Kukoc. He has Scottie Pippen. And this team, they lose Horace Grant. And they were almost getting to the Eastern Conference Finals. Michael Jordan comes back. And what does Jerry Krause do? Takes a chance on Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman, who was at this point in time dressing weird, coloring his hair, (laughs) being obnoxious, getting texts, getting thrown out, kicking cameramen, partying all the time. And obviously, as Phil Jackson said, they had to break bread. But Jerry Krause took a chance and said, hey, we need that guy because we didn't have him the year before. Michael Jordan said, hey, when they lost the Orlando Magic, we're a Horace Grant away. And, yes, that was some pointing that they, they they should still have Horace on their team. But then you upgrade over Horace and get Dennis Rodman, two-time defensive player of the year, multiple-time, I believe, seven-time rebounding champion by the time his end of his career was. And they took a chance on that. That's a gamble. 
that's not easy. Maybe the infrastructure between Scotty and Jordan and Phil made that work. But Jerry Krause had to go out there and convince people, hey, let's get Dennis Rodman. Who's a hothead? Who gets kicked out? Who gets ejected? Who's a problem child in the NBA? Does that. Also, brings in Ron Harper. Ron Harper, who was a solid all-star in Cleveland, tears his ACL, goes to the Clippers, tears his ACL. And probably just thought it was an afterthought out there in Clipperland. But this guy was averaging 20 points with the Los Angeles Clippers. And gets brought into the Chicago where he just has to run the offense, just run the offense, play the guard spot, play defense. Brings in those two guys that are vital and leads to a second three beat. Those guys are vital to those teams. So when people look at Jerry Krause and just be like they're booing him, and I'm like, this guy has made multiple moves where GMs would have fucked up. And I'm not saying that Jerry Krause didn't have some moves that probably would have fucked up or that got denied or whatever the case may be. But he orchestrated the Chicago Bulls. And Phil was a part of that who he brought in. Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, Dennis Rodman, Ron Harper, Steve Kerr, all these guys that they brought in. Brian Williams, Bryson Deli, um, Bryson Deli, sorry, who was vital to them later on, later in the uh, the run. So looking at it from that standpoint of what Jerry Krause did for the Chicago Bulls and to boo him, regardless of how you feel about him, you got to respect that. You can't boo that, man. You can't do that. That doesn't just make any sense to me. Um, and it's just dumb from Chicago Bulls fans. Now, my last point on this, Jerry Krause doesn't sign the checks. That's the first thing I want to say. Jerry Krause did not sign the checks. He brokered the deals, but he does not sign the checks. So why does a GM all of a sudden get gung-ho on trying to tear down a championship roster who has done nothing but brought money in, who has done nothing but win? There's only one answer to that question. Jerry Ronsdorf. The owner of the Chicago Bulls, who is still the owner of the Chicago Bulls, and I believe the White Sox as well. He signs the checks. And it was reported that after the sixth championship, he tried to go to Phil and say, hey, come back for one more year. You get a chance to defend your title. But after that, we immediately have to go into a rebuild. And Phil Jackson said, no, I'm not rebuilding. So who was truly trying to rebuild the team? Not Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause is only doing what he was told. He can only do what the owner confines him to do. That's how things work in the NBA. GMs just don't go all willy-nilly and able to do what they want to do. That just doesn't happen. Sometimes they have free will in doing certain things. But when they're in those high-pressure situations to keep championship teams and et cetera, et cetera, the owner is the one that pulls the plug. They don't want to pay for it, those guys. Michael Jordan was making $30 million. Scottie Pippen wanted a bigger contract. Dennis Rodman needed to be paid. A lot of those guys were on the last years of their deal. Phil Jackson was going to command the highest paid coaching 
uh, price tag in the NBA. That's what was going to happen. And Jerry Ronsdorf sat there and said, I don't want to pay all these guys who are aging. I'll pay Phil Jackson to be the coach. That was reported. Uh, I believe it was a couple-year, three-year deal. But he doesn't want to continue to pay Michael Jordan $30 million. He doesn't want to continue to pay Scottie Pippen $18 million. He doesn't want to have to fork up money for a problem child like Dennis Rodman. So why does everybody blame Jerry Krause for that? I just don't understand that. He had to operate, and maybe there were some things butting heads and stuff like that, and he kind of knew what was up, that eventually this run was going to come to an end and started looking for a coach in Tim Floyd. And started looking around because at some point, that's what GMs do. They're years ahead. They're light years ahead. And Jerry Krause took the brunt of that. And Jerry Ronsdorf for his ass to sit there and not step up and say anything about that in regard to that kind of sucks. It really does. It kind of sucks. But Chicago, you shouldn't be booing Jerry Ronsdorf at all. I don't think so. Um, but moving on to my next subject here. Uh, first, let me just give me one second. And Pascal Siakam traded to the Indiana Pacers as we pick back up here. Um, the Indiana Pacers finally pulling the trigger and getting somebody in there in their infrastructure, an all-star um, former NBA All-NBA player, uh, Pascal Siakam, was 29, going into 30 years old. Um, won a championship in 2019 with the Toronto Raptors. Obviously was a solid player there um, next to Kawhi and really stepped up defensively. I feel like that was because Colin Carter in that series uh, over the course of that playoffs and really became another two guy next to Kawhi Leonard um, and stepped up and played well over the past couple of years Have the Toronto Raptors have been failing to meet expectations and get back to that surface level. But they were really just built, re, uh, tearing down that team slowly and surely, um, losing Fred Van Fleet last year, um, Serge Ibaka. <laughs> a lot of guys are gone. OG Ananobi, who they traded a couple weeks ago, about two weeks ago. Um, but let's get down to the nitty-gritty of this deal. Um, the Pacers received Pascal Siakam in a 2024 pick from the Pelicans, I believe. Um, the Raptors received Bruce Brown, uh, Jordan Noir, and Kara Lewis Jr. from the New Orleans Pelicans in three first-round picks. Now, just to speak on the side of the Toronto Raptors, I love what they're doing. Um, Scotty Bonds is there. Um, and you got to figure out they traded for R.J. Barrett as well. And you got to figure out what you have here in terms of two young guys that you can build around. And they're trying to build around Scotty Barnes um, to get guys like uh, Emmanuel Quickly, um, R.J. Barrett, and then to sit there and get Kara Lewis, who has some potential there that they can also look at point guard there as well. At some point, they're going to have to trade Yaka Pertle. I hope that's the next move for them and just continue to build assets. But this is how you rebuild. And Masai Ujiri has a good mind on mindset who was emotional uh, after trading Pascal Siakam. I had a cool story about him. Um, but Masai Ujiri seeing ahead, and he waited and waited, and maybe he could have got those four first-round picks from four OG on an OB4 from Memphis last year, but he got three. He got a couple of there, and then he got something for Pascal Siakam. Now, he didn't want to pay Pascal Siakam, but this is the best thing. You get young guys who are potential to grow for that team. 
Um, the Pelicans were in this deal, and they just got cash considerations, which is weird. I don't know what why they didn't try to see if they can get a player or see what type of deal they can do or whatever they're doing. Um, but I feel like it was a good deal for the Raptors to continue to rebuild, continue to get assets, continue to build, and see what you got there. And with Scotty Barnes, RJ Barrett, Emmanuel quickly, and these guys, and see if you can develop there. Um, looking at it from the standpoint of the Indiana Pacers, the Indiana Pacers, obviously the highest uh, rated offense of all time. I think they put up 129 points. They get up and down. And now they got another guy who can finish creating the half court, I think was another part of this deal. Yes, the Pacers play fast and move up and down and shoot threes. Um, Pascal's not shooting the three that great uh, this year. But in terms of what Pascal can bring, he can finish at the basket. He can create in the half court. He gets out in transition as well finishes at the basket with dunks and layups. And that's what the Indiana Pacers do. They get out and run and playing with a guy like Tyrese Halliburton. Makes sense for Pascal Siakam, a person who's trying to get a max contract, a person who's trying to work on his numbers there. Um, kind of was lost in the sauce there in Toronto as they were trying to figure out what they were doing. But gets to a situation where he's a vital number two and doesn't have to create everything. At times we'll be doing that. But Next to Tyrese Halliburton, that's a good pairing for him. And there were rumors of him going to some people were saying Philly should have tried to get him. Um, I don't know how that would have worked. And then people were saying the Kings should have got him. And I was thinking maybe that's a good spot for him because it's a young team. He gets up and they get up and down. He'll be able to fit in there. But then it was just a situation of the Sacramento Kings having to pay De'Aaron Fox, DeMontis Sabonis, who two guys who they just paid, and then having to pony up some money for uh, Pascal Siakam. So I can understand why that didn't go through and why he wouldn't want to do that because he would be third on the pecking order and have to battle with Sabonis for that second time. But looking at it from the Indiana Pacers, they really need somebody else to score. They really need an inside threat. Miles Turner stretches the floor. Buddy Hill stretches the floor. Benedict Matherin is a scorer. Um, and they need somebody, somebody that's a little bit more dynamic and I think Pascal Siakam's a little bit underrated because he's getting lost again, getting lost in the sauce in Toronto. And people keep saying he's going to show up the defense and do this stuff. I don't think that's the main thing that he's going to look at right now, especially this iteration of the Indiana Pacers. But going forward, that's a good option to have. Um, Pascal Siakam, who's averaging 22.2 points per game, uh, 8.3 rebounds, oh, no, 6.3 rebounds, sorry, looking at that, and 4.9 assists. And – He's a good, solid option, and that's something that Indiana desperately needed. They don't have that on their roster going forward. They don't have that. So to sit there and turn around and get Pascal Siakam for what they did and keep their core intact and have more moves to make if they need a trade, and they have some guys that can trade, Buddy Heald, Miles Turner, um, and continue to see if they can continue to get some guys next to Tyrus Halliburton, who has been playing fantastic and at an all-star level who played tonight. They both played tonight. Um, they both they lost to Portland, I believe. Oh, let me just check the score. I believe they lost to Portland. Yes, they did. 118-115. It was close. Portland was up big at times, uh, but Indiana tried to rally back and just fell short. Um, but, yeah, this is going to be an interesting pairing and see how it goes forward. Now, people are going to sit there and say this move doesn't move them up in the Eastern Conference in terms it doesn't get them past uh, – New York, in terms of it doesn't get them past Philly, doesn't get them past Milwaukee, it doesn't get them past the Boston Celtics. But with their play style and with Siakam, you got to give them a chance at least to make some noise and in, in continuously because they were doing it without 
having another guy. And now that they have another guy, and we're at some points in the fourth uh, fourth seed earlier in the season, entire before Tyrus Halliburton just went down, he just came back tonight. You got a puncher's chance. And if you're Indiana, small market team, who doesn't get a bunch of free agents, doesn't get a bunch of trade offers to bring a guy in, you got to take this move. You got to take a chance on this one. And I really like that from the Indiana Pacers. Um, in terms of free agency and stuff like that for the Indiana Pacers, the biggest free agent they signed was David West. And I believe that was 2011, four years $44 million at that time after his run was done in uh, New Orleans. Chris Paul got hurt. He got hurt just at the wrong times. And David West is the biggest all-star that Indiana has ever had in their franchise history. And I love David West on 2K, especially with the uh, uh, New Orleans Hornets and then especially with the Indiana Pacers. But that's the biggest free agent they had, a guy that was 17 and 8. For their franchise. That's the biggest free agent they were able to sign. So when people are questioning this Pascal Siakam, it's like how many stars are going to be willing to say, hey, yeah, I want to go to Indiana. Yeah, I want to buddy up and go play with Tyrus Halliburton in Indiana. That just doesn't happen. That just doesn't happen. So at least for them taking this move, they're going to have to pay some money to Pascal Siakam. They can figure out their salaries. But you already got Tyrus Halliburton sold up. You're going to have Pascal Siakam at least for three years, two to three years, with this con- current, uh, this next contract that's coming up. And that's not a bad move. You can still figure out what to do and how to move and add some players. But see if you can build something here in Indiana. Do that. There's nothing wrong with that. I like the move for both teams. Um, I like the, the move for Kara Lewis, getting an opportunity in Toronto, hopefully. Um, maybe get flipped. I don't know. Toronto keep making moves. Bruce Brickle saying they should flip Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown's already playing dividends there. Um, so it, it, it's a good move for everybody involved. And I like it for Pascal Siakam. I like it for the Indiana Pacers. I like it for Toronto Raptors. All these teams are trying to build and do something going forward. We can't say that for every team. <laughs> so enjoy the basketball. Enjoy the trade. And let's see what happens with it. Um But that will do it for this episode of the Basketball Soapbox. Thank you guys for joining me. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe as we wrap up here. And thank you so much.